Sound too. What is Michael? Michael, what is it, Michael? What were we supposed to watch, James? Yeah, what did you watch? No, what were you saying first? Do you say what we were supposed to watch? Oh, yeah. Uh, we're okay. We were supposed to watch Punch Drunk Love. Michael, what did you watch? Punk a dunk a lunka. Punk a dunk a lunka. Dream I had. I'm not not fully prepared. I did not prepare this time. I'm sorry. (laughs) Usually it has meaning. (laughs) I love that they're just getting more mediocre, like Mm -hmm. more sad. Found it. Well, my faith in that bit is complete. Um, Completely And he's right. (laughs) And he is right. That's what we're covering today on Anderson's. Anderson's. I'm one Anderson, Michael Swameson. I'm the other son, Abe Epperson's son. <laughs> yeah, you get the double son. You get that son squared action. Yeah. Hot, hell yeah. baby. Son of hot, Epper. Hot son as... on son action. All right, that's <laughs> enough of that. Um, yeah, it's enough of that. And we're, uh, yeah. But welcome. Hey, yeah. guess what? Whoa. It's a Paul Thomas Anderson episode. We yeah. switch in this uh, in this podcast between Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson. Last time we covered the Royal Tenenbaums, and this month we got Punch Drunk Love, baby. That's right. Uh, which I mm-hmm. believe we've covered once before. As a frame rate. As a with straight Teresa up Lee. frame rate. Yeah, which mm-hmm. means, oh, and it was a Teresa episode. Okay. So that means Correct. there's definitely like area unexplored. Because I know when we talked to Teresa, boy, we just, it's tangent town we, in a delightful mm-hmm. way. But that means uh, I still feel I still feel pretty confident. I was worried slightly, but then rewatching it as I rewatched, it, I'm like, oh yeah, this holds up to a second scrutiny, oh, yeah, third baby. scrutiny. Yeah, there's. I'm pretty sure it. I, I only, watch it every like. It's one of my top watches. Well, yeah. to, of his. I think of, I made uh, like substantive notes of stuff that I didn't say last time, and there's still plenty of it. So let's get yeah. into it. And it's super dense still, even mm-hmm. though it's only an hour and a half. I, If you haven't seen it, I really do suggest you go and watch it. It's a sensory film, to say the least. Uh, oh, it's you blue. You have to use all of your senses to watch this one. Mainly your eyes and the color blue. No, that's... that's dude, not and your ear just, holes. The ear holes, for sure. And your dude. worry holes. I was worried the whole time. My worry holes were getting used. I was, yeah, I was worrying on some holes. So on this show, we analyze each film through three spectra, as we generally do with our deep dive series. And uh, this is no exception. We'll be talking diegesis, which is what happened in the movie, literally, the parts of the movie. We'll be talking pedagogy, which is underlying themes and underpinning philosophies, most poetical. And then uh, how do you do that, which is where we just talk mm-hmm. about final thoughts, if, especially if we have trivia or behind the scenes information or nitty gritty that that we can bring to bear. If it's based on a book or a comic, that's when we talk about the book or the comic. That won't happen the in this case. Book or the comic. It's usually yep. the shortest segment. Why am I explaining it so much? Let's get into da 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 da. Yeah, Jesus. Yes. 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 This is. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean. I, uh, yeah. We usually have some form of caveat before we just say scene one. I flummoxed you. You're flummoxed. Yeah, no, no. I'm not flummoxed. You're flummoxed. <laughs> Less <laughs> yeah, flummoxed than my, you are. 
uh, so he made Magnolia last, Anderson, yeah. that is. And he wanted to make something that was very short, very mm -hmm. 90 minutes long. So he wrote a movie for Adam Sandler and Emily Watson in particular. And uh, he wanted to make an art house Adam Sandler film. Uh, and so that's what you get. Uh, what else is relevant? Uh, barely, it didn't even make its money back. Really? It's 25 million box office, 24.7 million. And it's Tragic. just like, why don't we have good movies? Well, this is why we don't have any good movies anymore. No one watches them. Um, I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's very, very, uh, reductive, but you know, point is more of this, please App. from a spot on more of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who else is in it? Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it. Mm hmm. Louise Guzman is in it. Mm -hmm. Who is Robert in... Smigel's in it? Yeah, these are uh, well. I don't. I can't confirm Robert Smigel off the top of my head, but the other two yeah, were the, in Boogie yeah. Nights and various mm. other things, respectively. So, like, he's definitely doing his crew. He's bringing his crew along. Um, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. This adds Sandler to the crew, and of course, famously, Sandler will then go on to be the dude from Phantom Thread and the dude from There Will Be Blood. That would be amazing. <laughs> oh my god, if he just—I mean, he—I made him my believe. All right, so Netflix just came out with this movie Hustle, and yeah. before that, there's Uncut Gems. Yeah, I don't think this part of the career would ever happen. If it weren't for Punch Drunk Love, right? Like, we, I think we can safely say that 2002 was the first time we were like, Adam Sandler. Yeah. Yeah. He can act. That guy can act. Well, definitely you know? for us. And it's definitely the first time that offer was available to be to be seen. But that's I true. I think. So I guess even if the public didn't notice, because it did so dismally, uh, the industry definitely noticed for sure. Yeah. Because yes, yeah. it led to a whole tangent universe where Adam Sandler is a serious actor. Uh, and then he jumps back to streaming services and does something about magic shoes or whatever the fuck he'll do. Yeah, yeah, he does it all shoes. back and forth. Magic and shoes forth. that you tie and then you go back in time and you hit golf balls. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, I think, I think most people are now aware of what the thing is. Let's, uh, we should dive in, right? We should just dive into the movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Opening shot. Literally a man in a corner blending into his environment, talking on the phone, and being essentially hassled over the phone. And it's great because it sets up the entire character and the crux of the issue. And it's a cheap, easy shot anyone could fucking get. The set decoration is one blue stripe across the... And it's it's just brilliant. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I took the opening shot. You do the rest. Uh, well, uh, yeah. So after, so after he talks <laughs> with the Healthy Choice customer service person, he... Uh, uh, which is a plot line in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, he's distracted by the sound of a wire hitting a fence. And I mean, this is all still the same shot. Yeah. So uh, we just pan and dolly. Uh, he's distracted by the sound of like a wire uh, hitting a fence. And he goes outside and he witnesses an unexplainable car accident, I'd say. Right. Well, yeah. Uh, so that's and I won't stop us this frequently for the whole thing. But I do think that's one of the big yawning questions that I like that screams to be tackled every time you watch it is like mm. this watch through did you have any particular thoughts on the origin of the harmonium and the nature of the flipped car that flips and then disappears i feel like i've seen this movie enough i feel like I cracked it 
Yeah. And uh, I still got I still got it, yeah, <laughs> you know, in is... terms of movie understanding. But yeah, in terms of diegesis, I mean, the car appears to hit nothing and then flips wildly, violently at high speed. And I think that's all you really need to know to kind well, of. Well, and there's uh, no consequence. Like then it's gone. And then it's gone. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's uh, something we'll unpack a little bit later. But it, uh, immediately, for no reason, uh, a cab pu- pulls up. And drops off a harmonium and speeds away. And it's just utterly chaos. It all happens at once. uh, And they're seemingly unrelated. But there's a sense of urgency all around him. And he is just like, what? What was going on? Um, And so he goes back and uh, like finishes his phone call. Uh, And that's I guess that completes that little little bit uh i think we should wait to unpack that in the pedagogy really but, uh, i want to know what you think the you car wanna, means you want to you want to do a little side pedagogy yeah yeah yeah. i, I guess i don't the, see that uh, as open... pedagogy see oh, we're really? constantly still always arguing about what the nature mm-hmm. of the segments are <laughs> um then luis guzman who works with him asks him what's the deal with the blue suit you're wearing and he says i decided to get dressed for work i'm not exactly sure why uh, which I think just is a symbol that he's ready for his life to change today in some magical way that he didn't even know. But he, like, prepared for something important to happen today. And indeed it does, but we get uh, basically that cuts hard cuts to an intro sequence, which is just beautiful blue and red colors playing together mm. among stars. Mm. And the red and blue is important because there's a lot of color theory play in this, which we've covered mostly in the frame rate. So I won't talk too much about color theory. I would say you could check out the frame rate. Uh, with Mm -hmm. Teresa for that but uh, he's also getting hassled over the phone by his what eight sisters seven sisters I think it's seven seven sisters sisters. yeah Um, one of them says specifically get back to chatting with your customers you fucking phony chatty piece of shit so Mm -hmm. there's this heightened it's this heightened reality of he is the whipping boy of his family but to an to a cartoonish degree like they neg the shit out of him constantly Guzman says uh I didn't even know you had a sister, which I think is interesting because it subtly reveals how deeply disconnected he is from everyone. This Mm -hmm. is his business partner. You don't know that I have seven sisters who constantly harass me. Like that means we barely talk. You know what I mean? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just a, a series of sisters, including one of the sisters, Elizabeth, who's trying to set him up with someone who we learn is eventually Lena, uh, who was someone that Barry, uh, Adam Sandler met, uh, right after the harmonium accident, which is she drives in almost hitting the harmonium, uh, and then asks if they're like, she's looking for a mechanic. She's like, even she asks him straight up, are you a mechanic? Even though he's clearly wearing a blue suit and she trusts him with her key. She's like, can I just leave this here and you just look after it? I'll be back and I'll pick it up. He struggles with the interaction because that's what Barry does. And we learn later in the movie, she actually orchestrated this meeting. Um, but this is, you know, uh, this is, if there's a sense of fate in that the idea is one of the sisters is actually setting him up with her. So she's mentioned this before to multiple people, you know, yeah. um, and he tries uh, Barry on the phone with his with every sister uh, tries to eject from the party. That is what they're all talking about. Like, are you coming to the party? And he's like, no, nah, maybe I got to do a gym membership thing. And he gets chastised for it. So literally he can do no right. He's damned if he does. He's damned if he doesn't in terms of his sisters. So we get an implied history there, too. So he does go to the party. We cut to the party. Mm-hmm. Um 
he quickly finds out that she didn't invite the date he was set up with, which he's like mm. relieved by. But the party's still a fucking nightmare because everyone, the sisters and their various like, you know, spouses and whatnot are constantly yammering about him and how they used to call him gay boy when he was a kid and he would freak out. And mm. uh, they just keep yelling at him basically until he gets stimulus overload and yeah. kicks all the glass doors in their house and they shatter. The and scene really they shows... They immediately are like, what's wrong with you? Why did you do that? When it's so painfully obvious why he did that. It was why he did that. Like well, I mean, yeah, it's also like a, quite an overreaction. But like the scene is, it really shows how Sandler like gets the assignment. And he really, like he actually is a fantastic actor. I've never seen a more accurate description. Like, did you notice this time or any time... That he like greets his sisters in a certain way with his body language. And then he goes to the next room and he meets the children and the husbands. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just like he I've never seen a more accurate description of someone who's trying to like be a social chameleon than like this scene in particular, like his posture, his tone. His his eye contact just changes based off who he's talking to, and he's obviously and he's like a more confident, stronger with the husbands, more defensive and peacemaking with the sisters, and he's an absolute alien to children. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just thought that that it's all one shot, and like the nuance of it all is so very like he does not belong anywhere in this uh, equation, right? Uh, and underlined yeah. by the fact that he confides in one of the sisters' husbands, Robert Smigel. Um, that he needs help, he needs therapy, and the guy's like, "I'm a dentist, Barry," mm -hmm. and he goes, mm -hmm. "But can you hook me up with it?" But I figured I could tell you because you're a doctor. It has to stay confidential. Later, we find out that he tells all the sisters that this happened. So you know, it's a sad, yeah, got, pathetic scene. And uh, he's got self-esteem issues and anger issues. And yeah. when he confides in people, they rat him out to each other and talk. Yeah, about there's him no his help. Back. Yeah, there's no help. For no him. help anywhere. Um. The he next stops scene? at the grocery store mm -hmm. and seems to have an aha moment when he finds a bunch of cups of pudding that are Healthy Choice brand, which we recognize as the people he was talking on the phone with. And you're like, what's going on here? He obviously has some kind of scam that's developing. I don't think we understand all the details yet, but we will soon enough. Then we cut to him at home in his apartment and uh, he's trying phone sex because he's so lonely. And mm -hmm. it's a really horrible, <laughs> alienating experience where they laboriously take all his information. And then uh, he doesn't want to jerk off necessarily. He just wants to talk. But the girl just wants him to jerk off so the job can be complete. So he does jerk off. Um, and it just seems like a really hollow, horrible experience. Then on top of that, the next morning, they call him back and start asking him for money. And uh, they blackmail yeah, him. <laughs> essentially say, Well, should I call your girlfriend and ask them for money if you know what I Even mean? Even though he lied about that. He doesn't yeah. have a girlfriend. Doesn't but, matter. Yeah. But he's upset, still upset about being threatened and blackmailed, obviously. Um, and he goes to his office and he's like fidgeting with the harmonium, trying to fix it up with duct tape. My interpretation of that was he's confronted with something he can't control. So he tries to fix something. He tries that he to control he something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I also think that there is a beautiful moment with him playing like it, it's it's a raspy harmonium because of the uh, aforementioned hole. But he found some form of calm. The score, which is the first 10 minutes of the film uh, with all the chaos uh, before, like all, before the party, basically, uh, like the score dips and he plays and it's like the score waits for like and it's your solo. 
so there we get the sense that it's like the filmmaker telling us in this moment this is the only sense of calm in this chaotic world for him. Mm-hmm. Everything else is stuff he can't control, like you said, or stuff that he doesn't want any part of. Uh, and this is something that he actually wants to do and he, he treasures it and he wants to make it nice again. Yeah. Um, let's see. Got to consult my notes. Uh, oh, we learn a little bit more about his work cause he's selling plungers to people. Um, mm-hmm. and, then Lena comes in, right? Lena comes, yeah. Lena's womp, brought womp, in womp, by Beth, yeah. And uh, yeah, so the second time, and they it's meet, revealed but it's that the this weird time. lady you met that morning is the one you were set up with. And it's chaos once again all around in the workplace. But mm. you notice that Lena does this thing where she blocks all the nonsense of Beth, and he blocks all the nonsense of his job. And they kind of just try to force a kind conversation about each other. It's a, like. It really is the meet and greet, the meet cute bit. Um, and it's, uh, there's something like when you look at it, it really is kind of like a flip of a normal rom-com, which we'll, we'll get into more later. But just in this single instance, what you notice is that, uh, rather than in the meet cute, them seeing like the power of each other, which is the typical rom-com thing. Like, Oh wow. I like what you're bringing to the table. You're weird. You're quirky or whatever. We just move right past that. And we're talking about it's the world versus these two. And they both are equipped to deal with different circumstances, but they just know that they want to talk to each other. And I think that that's one of the unique aspects of this film is like how it approaches the rom-com. Um, but yeah, yeah, they're, they, they meet for the first time. She kind of runs, returns at, back after the cacophony. Cause like literally like forklifts are running into, you know, pieces of the building, et cetera, et cetera. And she, uh, she comes back and she just is like, you know what, I'm just going to ask you out. Uh, and, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll go to dinner with you. And just right then, Georgia, who's the phone sex operator, uh, calls back and says, you just made a war for yourself that you can't afford. And then we cut to uh, Georgia, literally in Provo, Utah. She works for Paul uh, Seymour, or sorry, not Paul, talks to, uh, works for Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he's clearly a scam artist. And he pays some men to go rough up Barry in uh, L.A. because he lives in Sherman Oaks. Um, and then we cut to the date where Lena tells him that like he's he, basically she saw a photo of him, wants to meet him. And then she orchestrated the whole car thing. And she uh, and he tells her about a DJ that he listens to and his pudding scheme. And uh, when he when she brings up the story, well, I think Beth it's important. Her, sorry, just to say yeah. this is where we get the details of the pudding scheme, which are specifically that he found the cheapest possible product, which is individually labeled pudding cups that right. can that you can accrue like box tops to get X number of frequent flyer miles. And his goal is uh, I could get millions of frequent flyer miles, which I could then exchange like currency because I don't travel. For a few thousand dollars. Yeah. yeah. And never buy a ticket ever again, right. which becomes and somehow later. leverage that, like as he says, well, frequent flyer miles are a new economy. Yeah, in and, and of his uh, yeah, <laughs> his epiphany in the supermarket is that they sell for ninety nine cents a, f- a pack of four, but they're individually marked, so it's like for a quarter you can get five hundred or one thousand miles. But anyway, um, it's a number that keeps coming up. I think that's one of the things that uh paul thomas anderson does is when he uses a number he really uses that number like it's everywhere in his screenplay um but yeah uh beth told 
Lena story about him as a child throwing a hammer and he shuts down uh, because he it's does the not same like one. any It's reference. obviously a trauma point. It's the same thing that triggered him at the dinner party. Yeah. And she brings it yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so he, sa- he says, I have to go to the bathroom. And then he just tears up the bathroom. He punches the walls, rips off the wall, like the doors. Uh, and he, and when a uh, waiter or the maitre d' or whatever uh, comes and uh, accuses uh, him of doing it. He denies it. And uh, the uh, waiter says, you got to get out of here before I break your school, man. And so they're thrown out of the, out of the restaurant. Uh, on the way back, Lena mentions that she's going to Hawaii, I think, for work. And she also hints that he, he should visit because it's, I think, implied that during the date at one point, probably because he's just like agrees to anything by default, uh, that he travels as well for work when in fact he does not. He's never traveled. Uh, uh, and while he's leaving, he says, have a good trip and bye bye. And then he repeats that like a mantra as he's exiting because he feels he's such an idiot and bye bye is a stupid way to exit a conversation, even though it's not really. A lot of this is just insecurity. Uh, while he's leaving, Barry gets the phone call at the front desk. It's Lena and she says she wanted to kiss him just as he was leaving. So as he comes, as he runs back, after getting lost in her apartment building, uh, he finds his way back up and they kiss. And then back at his apartment building, the Mattress Man gang, I guess the four blonde brothers uh, that we saw in a pre-coils. Uh, yeah, that the Mattress Man, Philip Seymour Hoffman, was talking to, uh, <laughs> basically just abducts Barry uh, and he's forced to cash out uh, $500 at uh, an ATM. And one of them, uh, hits him and he falls and he notices two things, a 99 cent store and the fact that they have a Utah plate. And then he starts running away and he's just growling like a goblin. It's still one of my favorite parts mm-hmm. of this movie. He's just, while he's running, he's just, ha, ha, ha. it's just so good. Um, and they, you know, the pickup truck pulls up and reminds him that they know where he lives. And so why is he running? And he realizes that. So we cut to uh, work the next day where he decides, you know what, he's going to go to Hawaii because he's got the whole pudding thing. And Luis Guzman and Adam Sandler uh, buy pudding together. Uh, but unfortunately, when he calls Healthy Choice to redeem, they need six to eight weeks to process the order. So he gets frustrated and punches a wall. The wounds on his knuckles look like they say love. Mm-hmm. Uh and the pudding scheme having struck him out, he decides he's going to go to Hawaii anyway. So uh, he goes to the airport. Apparently, and I it's think his it's important first to flight. Point out that maneuver because it's basically like if you've seen the visit, which is the Shyamalan, where he does it twice. One is this girl has this traumatic memory of a time that someone was molesting her, and she had a chance to shoot them with a rifle, and she didn't. And in the present, she suddenly gains the strength to shoot someone. And it's like, oh, good. That traumatic experience taught you the strength you need to shoot someone with a rifle. And in the same movie, they have a kid who like didn't do a tackle. And then he needs to tackle an old man. And he's like, this time I Mm -hmm. can do the tackle. And uh, I just think it's funny how. It's just a difference of finesse. It's like the difference between a cook and a chef, man. There's... They're both, those are both planned payoff, but the planned payoff in this case is that he's repeatedly said things like, I don't travel, I don't travel. And we've seen that he has an extreme problem with plans changing. And uh, he's very particular, right, about his routines and his safe environment and control over his surroundings. Uh, I, you know, it's pretty obvious he's neurodivergent in some ways. And he, 
what I think is the amazing maneuver that elevates this to genius is that almost every filmmaker, including Shyamalan, would do the thing where, oh, the pudding. And then he uses the pudding to go Hawaii. And you're like, it was his destiny all along to use the pudding to go to Hawaii. And like, it would be like the exact number of frequent flyer miles he got is how many they can process that gets you to Hawaii. But no, what PTA does is the pudding doesn't work. And he says for the first time in his life, okay, I don't care about that. Forget about the plan or destiny or whatever. I'll just be bold and do it anyway. I choose to do it. And that's mm-hmm. better than it being his destiny. Like that's better yeah. than it working out perfectly. It's, it's so good. It's better, it, but it's also obeying the structure of a rom-com because this is like midpoint. So yeah. this is where in those screenplays like, oh, no, you do an obstacle. see- yeah. You do see one of the characters in one of the lovers go, I'm going to make an active choice instead. I'm going to get out of my comfort mm-hmm. zone. But Michael's right. You, the, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, who does eventually use this whole like healthy choice, redeeming uh, fl- Dude, flyer. It's miles literally thing. called healthy choice. And it's about him finally making a healthy yeah, choice. Exa- yeah. It's yeah. like uh, it is really. I don't know. It's uh, it's it oscillates between perfect and hackneyed to me. But I think you're absolutely right. Just like the the love on his knuckles. Uh, it's all in the way you do it. It's almost like in this movie, it does feel like a joke. Uh, it doesn't feel like sincere. And he's kind of that's Paul Thomas's Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson's kind of like M.O. is he's just like, I don't know. Why'd you put that in a movie? I don't know, man. It's just like that seems like what movies seem to do. It's Mm -hmm. not like that's what I wanted to say. It's like he's like on a he's he's doing something. He's not actively. It's not like really ego fueled. Um, But maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into that, but into it. But I, I, I do really like that Paul Thomas Anderson does kind of make these choices that are out of left field, but still yeah. say stay uh, within the genre. Um, and I think this is one of those cases. Yeah. So he goes to Hawaii. He calls uh, her hotel from a payphone. Well, first he has to get the number or find out where he's staying. So he calls his sister who knows <laughs> Lena. And I think again, it's a planned payoff in the same way because we've seen him, which I love as a blocking directing touch. We've seen him so frightened by Georgia on the phone that even though he's on the phone and not physically talking to someone, he backs up and backs up until he's against Mm -hmm. the wall. I love that touch. And just to highlight the reverse here, now he's on the phone with his sister and he's willing to say, cut out this shit, stop this shit, I'll fucking kill you. This doesn't have to be this way. There's no reason to treat me this way. Just give me the fucking information. You're killing me. You're killing me with the way you treat me. It's uh, like, uh, yeah, we'll we'll unpack a little bit the I'll fucking fucking kill you part of it. But it's like, it's this mixed thing where you're like, man, he really needs help. This, you can't say that to anybody mixed with this really this catharsis but he that is, is moving like, out of his comfort zone he's yeah. so good at with just in you're killing me and you're killing me with the way you are toward with me the way you treat like yeah. is is so fucking like adam sandler really nails like man yeah fuck fuck her 
fuck her you know and then right. he says i'll fucking kill you and you go well, <laughs> all right that's a maybe bit not much. fuck maybe not fuck her like You're that dead. Hard, you know like <laughs> yeah it's just it's crazy how uh, also how many asinine details are in this movie you mentioned it before but small circumstances get in the way like uh, after he ch- uh checks with the front desks and he gets her number uh he calls and he gets some guy uh, he gets a man some guy who's like you got the wrong number and he's like oh and it's just ha- like you're just meant to believe that the uh, the operator just put him in touch with the wrong person for the first moment, which I don't know why it's in the movie. It's not. It doesn't help in terms of plot. It's well, actually a stopgap. I don't know if this but is it does inform. But I will say that then he calls the operator and says, you put me in touch with this room and that can't be Lena Leonard's room because there shouldn't be a man in that There's room. There's a man. Yeah. And uh that was one of the few moments in the film where I thought maybe they were trying to signal that he's on the autism spectrum because he does seem to have oh for this sure. very particular the social cue thing and the particular about like I'm just going to repeat out loud my thought about the logical sequence of events of what's happening here. Um, mm. So I don't know. I don't know if that moment is there for that reason or if it's just to be a little obstacle. But all he does is call again and it works this time. So she picks up. It works this time. And And though he does have issues because he's like, clearly he does say, so like, were you ever married or like, are you, do you have a boyfriend right now? Because he he can't get out of his mind the idea of there's a man there right now. And he gets very extremely jealous, which is something also he should work on. But they smash like, and they have really weird pillow talk and it's um, all pink. And he says, OK, this is funny. This is nice. <laughs> and they bone. And uh, I like you got me out of my hotel room. It's really yeah. nice. And he says, it really looks like Hawaii here. <laughs> yeah. He's scrupulously honest with her once he reaches Hawaii, uh, which is great. And and the only time we ever see her lie in the movie is in Hawaii when she lies on the phone to his sister and claims that oh he's my not God. there, which is that know, scene is so good because she cute. realizes that Beth is so toxic to Barry mm-hmm. and she's just looking at him with total confidence and like they're embraced in the love. Barry has a different expression and a comfort on of his own. And she just shuts down the Beth conversation. She just says, no, Barry didn't call me last night. Yeah. And then uh, I love that the sister, she's like, sorry if he's a little weird. Yeah, he was a little strange. You can't say that. I mean, I can think that, but you can't think that. And she just unfazed Lena's just like. It just yeah, gives you one more shade of whatever complexity into uh, the family it, life. You're like, that whole right. mess is complex. She's right. figuring it out. And they're both just so confident and in love in this scene. Like, yeah. I understand why Paul Thomas Anderson wrote it for them two in particular. It fucking breaks my heart. It's so beautiful. Um, yeah, um, and he's filled with so much confidence that he calls Georgia and basically says, uh, hey, you guys fucked me over and reverse blackmail, beat me <laughs> yeah. and took my money. I'm probably going to call the cops unless you call me. So he's very reasonable. Return. Though. He's like, so please call me and talk about how we can go about returning my money. And that'll be yeah. that. And uh, mm-hmm. that's not going to work out. So on their on their drive. uh Wait, they, we, fly they back get back from to the Hawaii, States, obviously. And he's driving yeah. back because they, they're they like, hey, is it cool if we go to like my apartment when we're back? And he's right. like, I assume that that's what's what, goes, what was going to happen as they're pulling they in shmish. to literally uh, his driving uh, spot or his uh, parking spot. Uh, they get smashed, yeah, by the mattress man truck, the four, uh, the four uh, blonde the brothers. brothers. The dead eyes. Mm-hmm. 
And he just gets out. He notices that Lena's uh, injured. Uh, she's bleeding from the Which forehead. Makes him hulk out. And he hulks out. He turns into a completely different beast. He just lays into the whole gang. With he like one iron, pop yeah. each. Three out of four of them down with the tire iron in like one hit. Uh, that you know they brought to the fight, by the way. <clears throat> and that takes. And then he takes Lena to the hospital. Uh, and then he calls the phone sex line again, and he loses his mind at Georgia, demanding that he talk to her supervisor, who gets Dean. That's where we get the first time what uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's name in this mm -hmm. movie is, the mattress man. And it's just like toxic masculinity. The phone call basically ensues. It's pretty fucking hilarious, but it's pretty clearly like, I'm the one who's in control. No, I'm the one who's in it's control. It's like two junkyard dogs barking at each other. Yeah. Right. Barry basically tells him to go fuck himself. Did you just Paul say go fuck myself? <laughs> yeah. That wasn't good. You're dead. No, you're dead. <laughs> like it's out of his hands now, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. We cut to oh, Lena that noticing good... that Barry, <laughs> Lena notices that Barry left her at the hospital. Meanwhile, Barry runs to the hospital after the phone call phone receiver still in hand he just ripped it right out uh and i assume he ran there because it's his it, like he was in his place at sherman oaks or something like that he's too late uh she's been discharged and he real barry realizes you know he's saddened by this but uh barry realizes that he ne he needs to track down the D, D mattress man so he does through the uh through the yellow pages or through the operator and he goes to utah phone still in hand when he arrives in utah also we know that his car is totally fucked because we saw like that tire was gone after they got crushed so i think it means he like the movie's implying he ran from Sherman Oaks to Provo, Utah, mm -hmm. which is impossible. It's magic. Yeah, <laughs> that's magic. But uh, then we get the that's that mattress man scene. Uh, that's that mattress man is basically that he just tells him again. He basically just came to do the threat in person is what it boils down to. Right. You know, this can be the end of it. He doesn't even get the money back. He's like, you just have to. We're done here. You just have yeah. to say that's, that's that. It. Like you have to let this be. You submit to me. It's it is like dogs. And he's like, and you didn't call the cops? No. And he's like, all right, that's it. <laughs> um, but obviously, he can't let it drop because he hates to be humiliated. So he goes and get out of my store, you fucking pervert. And he what goes, did I tell what you? did I just say? And he goes, that's that. That's that. And that's he it. leaves. So. And yeah, um, two barking dogs. That's all it yeah. is. Yeah. And basically he returns to Lena God. wanting to say, I love those lines in that whole sequence though. Before I beat the hell from you, mm. I have a love in my life that makes me stronger than anything you could ever yeah. realize. But we said all this in the frame rate, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so true. good. That's true. It's so Bears good. Repeating. Um, basically Last the end, sequence. he goes to Lena's yeah. door he says, I love you. If it's okay with you, I want to trade in all my pudding and follow you around wherever you need to travel for the rest of your life because I never don't want to be with you. And she's like, but you left me at the hospital. You cannot do that. And he's like, okay, I won't ever do that. And there's this slight yeah. hesitation moment where you're like, oh, was that a deal breaker for her? But no, it's not. She embraces him. They kiss. Happy ending. And you get the vibe that he's going to use his millions of miles to travel with her because she travels all the time. Her little pet just boy. be with her <laughs> yeah. yeah so in six to eight weeks they can go anywhere they want uh and yeah they kiss end of movie or not end of movie but she comes into his work while he's playing the harmonium 
she hugs him and there's it. a shot that almost seems like a Shakespearean framing device where it's not diegetic. It's like, yeah, it's like it's, a set piece shot of, and here we are in the workplace scene we're familiar with and it's lit very dramatically and he's playing the harmonium and they hug and you're like, yeah, and she like, what? Yeah. It's she like, like a Frank Capra up. ending vignette. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, uh, it's very cool. And that's the movie. And then you see that's... Dirk Diggler's dick in all its glory. Mm -hmm. Finally. Finally. And that's diegesis in under 40 minutes in under 30 minutes. Diggler Jesus. Mm hmm. Okay. You want to get into it? Yeah. Pedagogy. Let's, let's gauge this pet. My best, I'll start with my very best one, which I didn't get last time and, or cause mm -hmm. I've never noticed at all until this time, which is, uh, every he repeatedly struggles with glass doors, kicking the glass doors open, obviously. Mm -hmm. But there's multiple times where he also walks into a glass door, uh, at his workplace office. Yep. And I love the symbolism of that because it means like he can't get he can't navigate passages that other people are easily able to navigate. That's yeah. And it's also a thing that is publicly embarrassing. Like yes. it has so much social stigma attached it's to it to walk into also, a glass door. Also, uh, glass breaks in a cacophony. You right. know, that's something that hey, keeps everyone coming look at up this at asshole. The, yeah, exactly. It breaks into thousand shattered pieces that no one can put back together, and it cannot be denied that it broke. You know, it's like there. It's not like a you know you can buff yeah. it out or. And something. I can't prove this is intentional, but I'll just say, at the hotel when Lena calls down to the front office and he realizes she wants him to kiss her at the moment she calls, he's successfully opening a glass door and walking through it. So it's like, Oh, now he can do that. And that mm -hmm. earns him the phone call. And it's just about navigating. Like he can navigate life, a simple thing, like a door. He can it is, navigate it. Yeah. Uh, we didn't do it justice, but it is a surprisingly cute movie for all of the dense themes that, uh, mm -hmm. are clearly in it. Like, you know, just the idea of when they meet in Hawaii, you know, and everything's pink and everything. And he like they're they're doing the scene where they all they come together from a distance. They see each other at a distance. Walk each other. He extends his hand out like he's going to shake her hand. You know, it's just the way he navigates the world is like he's so clearly uncomfortable in every part of it. Um, but I, I do think that serendipity visually is definitely a thing that's of mm -hmm. intention because. Yes. The other big one I noticed this time was when he's at the grocery store at the exact moment that we see in his face, in his eyes, oh, he is seeing the pudding for the first time. A lady in a beautiful red dress out of focus walks by in the background. So it's like, even though Lena's yes. not there, her color is there. Her color is there. Yeah. We're going to talk about that. Let's start with the opening image, though, actually, because uh, we mentioned that we would. Um, I want. Yeah. So. He's talking to Healthy Choice. You mentioned that. But it's the seeking of loopholes, right? He's talking to him about something that is like money saving. It's about taking advantage of mistakes. And it's all around the concept of accumulating power, right? Like the idea behind it is I'm going to have a conversation with this person. I want to get what I want. I want to have power in this situation. So it's reflecting back at the world that the world itself is your enemy, or at least you must need... You must do what you need to do to get a leg up. I think it's pretty clear that that's kind of how Barry at first sees the world. Uh, and I think another thing it does is we talked a little bit about the inexplicable car accident, which is just, I think, nonsensical chaos at any moment. 
the world firing shots at you for apparently no reason. So symbolically, uh, even if it's not coming at you, it's just coming around you indiscriminately. Uh, the world is, in fact, sending you volleys of threat. But the third beat of the opening image is the nebulous and also inexplicable gift of the instrument, uh, the harmonium. And I think that there's a reason that the man who drops off the harmonium is in a is in black. The frame crops his face and he's not in a personal vehicle. He's in a cab. He's essentially unknowable. Right. And that's like, I think to me, a placeholder for like, I guess it's kind of like fate handing Barry some music, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that the point of the film is that like we talk about opening images a lot and it's like, usually you can construe exactly what the metaphor at play is going to happen for the rest of the movie in good movies from just the first, like, gosh, you know, like 30 seconds to, you know, however long the first sequence is. But the point of the film is that some people find life intolerable. Right. And for all of us, Definitely, we find it full of a lot of suffering, but good can come just as unlikely as the bad. And the gifts can sometimes be a person entering your life and making it all together more tolerable. Now, this isn't new territory for like a rom-com or for any Hollywood story. It's just uncharacteristically a rom-com. It's unnerving because it doesn't ask you to believe that your protagonists need to be like lightly fixed, like an like in most rom-coms, they're usually like trying to fulfill the maximum of their potential. Barry and Lena have seriously deep issues with pain and the world demands that they just take it. And this is them finding a union that says you don't have to in this space. And that's what makes it kind of beautiful as opposed to you became the best self version of yourself. It's exactly like uh, it's a storybook. Um, this is still a storybook message, but it starts from a deeper place, I guess. Um, and you can just see it all in that opening image. I think that I cry a lot when I watch this movie. And I think that actually this time I realized that it's because it's not because it's a reflection of, to me, this is almost the most seductive, uh, romance fantasy I've ever seen because there's so much serendipity involved. Like I weep because mm -hmm. this is a love that I don't think many actually encounter it's almost it's too perfect like uh mm -hmm. i watched it with my mom this time and at the end mm -hmm. she said something that i do think everyone has to address when they watch this movie eventually at the end she goes oh she is too good for him though <laughs> or like there's still some question as to other than when they're having sex lena's a little weird then there's some question as to how is lena so perfect as to just burst onto the scene into his life and reach into his life and be like, I love you, even though no one cares about I, you. I'm going to save disagree. you from that. I um, disagree entirely. Well, but, I, I mean, weep I can't... because I don't see that happen often around me. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. Uh, I don't agree with your mom. Um, I do think that there's, you know, I mean, like, it's Burn. fine to, to think that, but like, obviously... Uh, but if you're like paying attention, it's not her movie, so you don't see it, but he, he outlines a very specifically, like a very sad, broken woman. She says multiple times to Barry, uh, like you got me out of the, you got me out of my hotel room. Like she talks about how, like 
basically dating is uh like it's bullshit like she is definitely one of the situ in a situation where she she's definitely more to put together in terms of like normal like i would say like world facing you know like there's a reference to her having six months ago had a boyfriend but so she's not broken in the same way Barry is. In fact, she's the it's a yin yang situation. That's what I'm saying. And the odds she's, that you would meet your yang when you're yeah, a yin are very low in real life. What she shares with Barry is this deep, deep unhappiness and this need to for a big change. Right. Like Barry has multiple like we started in Medis Rest. The it's kind of funny because the blue suit he's wearing the entire movie, uh, we're supposed to believe that yesterday, if the movie started, he wasn't wearing that suit and he's never worn that suit mm -hmm. because his sister's pointing right. out Everyone time and time again. It. Yeah. Uh, like he's trying, he tries the harmonium is obviously like a metaphor for him. And she's going to bring harmony into his life. Right. Exactly. But also it's just the idea of him taking it back. Luis Guzman is like, but why'd you take it? Uh, I don't know, uh, which also is. But the she validates at the, the end. No, it's yours. Right. It belongs to you. But the idea is that he wouldn't have. No one expects him to be the kind of guy who would have picked that up. He's not. He doesn't do anything like that ever. This movie is just like the in and out point of the life of his life is a completely different person because he's internally off screen right before the movie started. Uh, even with the, uh, pudding scheme, I don't think that's something that he does normally. I think it's, we're supposed to kind of look at the movie as here's a man who's made a choice before the movie starts. I'm want, I need something to be different. I'm very unhappy. I cry for no reason. Something must change. So he's making these active kind of changes in his life that he doesn't know if they're going to do anything, but he just knows that like, well, businessman wearing a suit, that means I'm going to be successful. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful for the future. That's why I chose to buy a suit. Uh, they, you know, business is very important being like business acumen is very important. I'm going to do the pudding scheme. Uh, all that stuff is happening and just no one supports him in it uh, because that's the situation he's in. And it's the same situation that created him to have these defense mechanisms and be arguably wildly violent um, yeah. because it's been there there's just two life. moments that make me, I think, disagree in the sense that. Or, well, uh, the thing I said about yin-yang and the, just the unlikeliness of finding your perfect yang that fixes your damage with their own damage. Uh, right. But Lena seems too intelligent and insightful to have discussion of a morning radio DJ who, quote, tells it like it is, be like enough for her. The date scene, I'm surprised that that's enough for her. Like that's that entertaining went, enough, that's enough conversation. Her, yeah. And then... The other moment is, I'll just say this. I mean, I love that it works out for them, but I will say there is a version of this movie that I could equally see them having gone with uh, where they just feel like being tragic instead of happy where she, where he loses her because, you know what I mean? Where he shows up at the hotel room and she goes, but you abandoned me at the hospital. That's a deal breaker. And it's like, I think that would be the saddest movie I've ever seen and probably make me want to kill myself. Yeah, but yeah. that's definitely a way it could have gone in real life easily, easily is like, yeah, you left me at the hospital. That's a deal breaker. No offense, but mm -hmm. that's a deal breaker for me, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I guess I just see it as like this beautiful depiction of this thing where it just, where it works out so well that I'm like, I'm almost, it's more precious because I don't know how often that happens in real life. I wouldn't say never, but not frequently. 
um, mm. where damage in my experience, at least is like Jen and I both had damage and it's the opposite. They don't perfectly complement each other. Au yeah. contraire, they cause an interference pattern that creates these dynamics that you have to work really hard over years to stop doing. And you go like, that's cause that's your damage aggravating my damage. I never have the experience where I'm like, I'm damaged like peanut butter. I'm damaged like chocolate. Together, we're instantly perfect. And you're like, damn, good for you. That's a good, that's a good job to get. I think it's I think that's the heart of the movie, is it's trying to say he definitely has so many red flags. He does need to be fixed. He needs to see a therapist. Mm -hmm. He's trying to. He just doesn't uh what is doesn't it? have what a is, support now. There's a line. I don't know if there's anything wrong because I don't know how other people are. Mm -hmm. That's a very, I mean, a, that's a very neurodivergent line, but also that's like, yeah, he, the, he lacks any form of support. Uh, it's also why he lies all the time. You know, he calls everyone else a liar, but he lies. He hates himself. It's a defense mechanism built to deal with. But all he wants is connection. Like we have the famous story yeah. of when he threw a hammer through the glass door. They continually ask, where did he get the hammer? Where did he get the hammer? It's finally revealed. He was building mm -hmm. a doghouse, um, which is you're trying, you're creating a receptacle for a friend, right? You're trying to attract right. yeah. a friend and fill that slot. And then I love that he also has the. His day job is selling plungers in bulk, which is literally a tool for like stuffing horrible shit down out of sight. Well, he's all blocked up. Baby. Yeah, he's all blocked up <laughs> emotionally. Uh, I think that's probably the metaphor, but yeah. I don't know. Uh, that that's, I think it that's is. probably reaching, but I think it is. I mean, you 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 get to choose anything, and you choose a plunger. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's because it's a mundane joke. Well, and that's a plunger I that is lauded as being unbreakable, but then it breaks. Mm -hmm. Which also I speaks wanna, to his fragility. Yeah, but like while we're here, I do think that like because I do think that there are misses in this film. Uh, I want to kind of talk about this neurodivergence a little bit because I think it needs to be said that he's kind of uh, just capitalizing I think on that in without this movie, a real exploration. <laughs> there's moments in this movie that kind of make me wince personally. I think the writing and most of Sandler's performances, for the most part, intact, like fantastic. Uh, it taps right into the feeling of being like not comfortable with the world. And it's, uh, you know, having, I haven't, I, I wouldn't say that I've experienced neurodivergence, uh, you know, personally, but I see it in my household. I see it with a lot of my friends. There's moments where it's clearly playing, this movie is playing it for laughs. Like, quote, sometimes I cry for no reason at all. Then like crying. when he's talking to her. Yeah. And then he starts crying in a kind of pretty happy, funny, Gil dude. happy Gilmore way. Yeah. You know, like he's it's a crying fit. Like, it I is funny. Stop crying. Yeah. I think it's funny because everyone's weird. And that's that's a good reason. It's but it's set up to be a tender moment. Right. It's not mm -hmm. the other characters meant to laugh at him and that does something for the story it's literally the filmmaker saying you the audience you laugh at him and you i don't know if <laughs> and i don't know if pta or adam stanley truly could decipher when to activate it i think they're good at activating both i knew i think they knew from a story or a scene perspective that they're supposed to sympathize and also look at him as a fool in some moments. Like it's, it deals with like, he's, he's got flaws. When do we look at his flaws as deeply disturbing? And when do we look at his flaws as kind of funny and foolish? Uh, I think 
probably, I don't know. I can't answer for them, but usually storytellers when they're against the wall, usually say it's both. Uh, I hear that excuse or, a lot. It's, it's what you make of it. It's what you want it you to want. be, bro. Yeah, and that, yeah. that works too. And I understand you can do multiple things and, you know, a story and, even in series, you can set up a compound moment and make it more complex. But movies do run in series and you make one choice at a time. There's only one ball you can score with. And to me, like they clearly don't know perfectly how to navigate that conversation. But it's such a good introduction into that conversation. It's also one of the only times I can think of a movie that actually tackles uh, his kind of flaw as something not to be fixed, but something to be tender toward. Um, I think that it, it it's the saving grace of the movie that we don't see scenes where she like corrects him, but it is implied, right? It's implied that no, not only does least, she not correct him, but like, and in fact, I think this is this time hit me as the cutest thing of all. Uh, I'm starting to do it with Jen and they hate it is that when they make the date, so he uses wrong words a lot. He says, I'm very food instead of I'm very good. And everyone always makes fun of him. Like, mm -hmm. it's a perfect system because it's three. I, Two times my, he fucks yeah. up. My name is back. Oh, no, I'm yeah. Jack. Yeah. And then the third time he says hi instead of bye to Lena. And instead of correcting him, she says hi and then leaves. She accepts his reality. She accepts his reality. It's so yeah. fucking cute. But it's also cute because it's. Like, I don't like saying bye to my beloved, right? I think it's a super cute affectation as a yes. couple to say hi every time you part. That's really cute right. to me. It's also <laughs> because they're in Hawaii, aloha means hello and goodbye. So yeah. It's also got oh, that. shit. Yeah, that works so yeah, well. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, absolutely right. I think that there's, there's ways in which I think that the thing that we kind of need to navigate to really understand it is that there's ways to, there, there's ways in which he he's being corrected by her like he is wildly violent he needs to see a therapist he hates himself he's got self-esteem issues she does correct him in that she points them out to him but in a healthy way that's different from like her like all right i'm gonna grab on i'm gonna like carry you all the way like that's not the image we're gonna see we see the image we see is them holding each other it's not like a uh you know she is a solvency for him they help they they help each other up. I think that that's most rom coms and stuff like that. That's why that is a timeless story and perspective. Um, but like, I do really think that there are there are bits where, uh, you know, obviously it is uh, it like I don't think that you can navigate that space as well, or at least Paul Thomas Anderson and Adam Sandler didn't as well. Um, but namely in his neurodivergence, incredible at freaking car crashes. This time I couldn't stop thinking how much I wanted oh, yeah, to do right. a car chase movie. I just think he'd nail it. Like, what if he yeah. did a born the born tetralogy or whatever, the born virology? <laughs> I think PTA would crush that. <laughs> PTA born, come on, start PTA the movement born? online. Born PTA, right. yeah, right. It's just gonna be full of little like asinine details, like you know, the well, main yeah, character born focuses is like on like identity. aging narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm not sure what even doesn't matter if I ha have if an I'm identity. Born, kind yeah. Of stuff. yeah. <laughs> uh, but what yeah, easy to uh, be born. Um, I love the sensory aspect of this movie. Of course, the cacophony uh, kind of goes into kind of like how we were discussing the opening of the film. 
Um, everything is a crash with Barry, you know? Uh, and I love that they set this up. Like when Barry takes the harmonium, a huge truck drives by, like mm. it makes you think that he or it is going to get pulverized on the street. Uh, there's little pings in the soundscape for no reason. Chairs randomly break, forklifts Dude, run into. the final time when there's this one long shot and then it's panning mm. back across and Luis Guzman just falls off his chair, like his chair collapses. Yeah. A, it's, it's just hilarious. Like, but B, that's the one beat that puts it over the top to the point where you're like, this workplace is magically chaotic. It's like a, it's yeah. so perfect the number of joke beats mm-hmm. they get out of that, where you're like, where does he work at the Three Stooges factory? Like, right, yeah, it's yeah. constantly forklifts <laughs> through the wall and shit. Yeah, it's great. Menacing. I think, uh, I think, uh, like, it may be more obvious to us because we've talked about this movie so much together, but I think that why is he doing that? Why is it like, and why is the score like drums constantly to the point that it's anxiety inducing for I've, that's what I've met people like who have watched people this. Who take stimulus. That that's way. Barry. Yep. We're getting a sensory glimpse of Barry's world. Uh, yeah, people. Some people I've known uh, really don't like this movie for that exact reason. It's too anxiety-inducing, uh, and I think that that is you know. I that's also true. think we, it's uh, uncut gems. The best thing about uncut gems is already in Punch Drunk Love, which yeah, is exactly. this yeah. kind of editing and sound design strategy, like especially the close miking of the impacts in the bathroom when he's tearing the right. bathroom apart. Um, right. It's funny watching this again after watching Uncut Gems because the one thing I really loved about Uncut Gems was the way they developed the tension all the time rather than systemically. And then I'm watching this again and I'm like, wait a minute. They already did this with Sandler. This is Uncut Gems. Um, it's just not blanketing the whole movie. It's during choice sequences, but it is really mm-hmm. Uncut Gemsy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. I think it's still his uh, reigning reigning champ of his career uh in terms of performance it's oh, over, kind of the perfect... oh oh sandler sandler not pt sandler okay yeah i mean it's it might be my favorite to rewatch. you're messing with the zohar right now and you don't even know it zohan zohan oh i messed with the zohan <laughs> yeah you did uh you got don't the zohan <laughs> uh but yeah uh that's um what else? What else? What else? We talked about in the frame rate, but just to mention it, if you're just doing a rewatch after this episode, look at red and blue and pink. Uh, it's typical rom-com shit, uh, but there's an insane amount of color control in this $25 million movie. Literally quadrants of frame are red versus blue, red representing Lena, blue representing uh, Barry. Uh, and it signifies the joining of them together until their first date. Red is exclusive to her presence uh, until the, and after the first date. Uh, red is everywhere because it's everywhere for Barry. Um, what else do we? Uh, we talked about there was a there's a very popular take online, which some people might have seen, which is that this is a superhero movie. I think that that I personally don't uh, subscribe to that just because it's like. I think that it's making Barry more of a hero than he actually is. But the idea is that he gets super, he has superpowers. Uh, He literally like does something that makes it seem like he flies at one point. He has a blue cape essentially. Uh, And there's red and blue motifs all throughout the film. And her name Uh, is Lena Leonard like Lois Lane. 
Lois Lane. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that does, but I I don't know. I think that PTA could have put that in. He, if we recall from Magnolia, he also said that he did he put the frogs in at the end and hadn't heard it from the Bible. Who knows if that's true? Uh, the Cohen brothers, who are also not like hopeful nihilist uh, filmmakers, uh, are very uh they're all these fil- all these filmmakers are enamored with circumstance and the concept of oh that's weird that it just happened literally for magnolia the resonant live line is but it's happened and the resonant line i would argue in this movie is i don't know it's said by barry like 90 times in the movie and it's because he just doesn't know what's going on because he doesn't know how to compute the world but uh, I think when it comes down to it, like if, if you're asked to, f- if you were to ask the filmmakers about this theme in particular, they probably say like, oh, really? Did you see that? That's pretty cool. Uh, I didn't intend to put that in there, but I think probably he thought about it once. Maybe <laughs> that's my, that's just my two cents. When the moving truck goes by, it says relocation at its finest, which is the same moment that he's inspired to finally take the step and travel, which he repeatedly says he never will. Um, when he fucks around with the harmonium at the beginning, light slowly blooms onto his face. But then suddenly Luis Guzman opens a garage slider door and the light bit like washes his face and it becomes a sensory overload. So the idea mm. of like with someone who is like Barry, it's you can be trying to help, but it's still too much too fast. He needs slow light. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, He needs someone to slowly, which is why he sort of titrated into the relationship. She runs into Mm -hmm. him randomly. Then she comes and is there as a date. Then she comes and is aggressive and they're actually on a date. So it's like she eases herself into his life. All that stuff. I actually think it is like get out, meaning I do think it intentionally has a tremendous number of little clues visual and otherwise yeah the blue lens flare the first time you get a nice horizontal blue lens flare is when he's solemnly jerking off and you get it off the tilted lamp in his uh and that's the moment that we don't know it yet but that's the very moment that he's running afoul of philip mm-hmm. seymour hoffman and being about to be blackmailed then we get a nice healthy horizontal blue lens flare when he goes to utah to confront philip seymour hoffman so like the blue lens flare is menace um there's just so many well, things that map in that way. It's more complex because it's also the how we end the film, right? As as Lena hugs him at the harmonium, a blue lens flare takes over the screen and becomes the then flips to this the vertical color graph that he which uses. are just animated like color fields. And uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's more represents like this uh, lack of comfort with something. Which can be seen yeah, as outside beautiful the thing. boundaries. Yeah, it's how you deal with it. You know, it's like so. I think that the ending, it's in one sense, it's anxiety-inducing because he didn't, they didn't have each other, and then by the end of the film, it's like I can deal with this lens flare. I can deal with exactly. This he can handle thing the lens that's flare. staring me in the face, and I'm happily playing a harmonium. And it's concentrated um, light, so I think. I just I, I think, think the yeah. systems are intentional personally. I think I think that's very intentional. And I don't think that down. PTA always does that. For example, in There Will Be Blood, like I don't think he's always doing mathematical color play. I think he decided for this mm-hmm. one to like probably zhuzh up rom-com because he's like, okay, I'm gonna do a rom-com. Yes. How can I make it interesting for myself? And he added all this bells and whistles and shit. And I love shit like that. <laughs> right. And this is probably how he do that, but just because it's so relevant, this is a literal choice they made. Robert Ellswit, the DP of the film, 
talked about choosing which stock of film that they were going to use. And they chose a specific, it's Fujifilm super F is the name of it. And it's a very expensive duped low light stock that really gives details in the shadow in the cases where you're like, for example, if you were to point a camera at a, like a docking bay door and then open it up and let the world come in, it's going to err on the side of the shadows having more detail. And I think to the sake of like the high end sacrificing the high end with brightness. So you get less dynamic range. So more or less the point is that they knew that they're going to have blaring differences of light in the frame, bright and dark, almost silhouetted scenes at some point. And they were like, let's get into the dark and pull that detail out as opposed to the bright. Um, and I think that that must've been a conversation that they had based off exactly what you were saying in terms of the, th the theme. Um, it's just, that's how it's also probably because they knew they wanted to go more run and gun, get more takes, that kind of thing, not have to light every shot. Um, but yeah, it's still a beautiful film because of that kind of because of its imperfections, which is something, I mean, this is 2002. You don't see a lot of those movies. Uh, at, well, I mean, you don't see any movies at $30 million budget now, but like, smaller indie films they don't have that control but they also they're the only ones who try this type of thing i think that was howdy do that and we've come into howdy do we've that gone into howdy do that um okay yeah uh what else well i'll be i'll spill all my beans and say this is in the last four days this is podcast seven of eight <laughs> so I don't have anything for how to do that. I'm scrolling up and down. And I'm like nothing technical. I, will, I always forget to write down technical notes. He needs me. He needs me. He mm -hmm. needs me. And I am here to meet the challenge. And let's start with that song. It's a song by Harry Nielsen and sung by Shelley Duvall. Yes, the actress from The Shining, mm -hmm. because it's from the Popeye soundtrack. Wow. And I think... Because she's olive oil, and that's the one 1980 with Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall. Uh, I think it's because it's kind of a similar situation. Popeye, I mean, when you think about thematically, Popeye is a super violent dude. Uh, I'm very food. <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things going on. But like, and olive oil is kind of like the balm to his existence, right? And that there's a little bit of that in this movie. Um, let's, what else? What else? What else? Uh, we talked about sound being important in this movie. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson bought uh, Gary Rydstrom in to do sound mixing, which is a name you may or may not have heard, depending on if you're into sound mixing. Mm -hmm. But he's uh, he's the chief sound or was the chief sound editor for Pixar. Uh, and he's known for big, noisy stuff, uh, specifically when he worked with Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan, Jurassic Park. Uh, these are the beginnings of his career. Um, the filming and the editing took place within a year uh, and a half due to several reasons. One of the first, which is Anderson scrapped the first two weeks of shooting because he was like, I feel like I'm making the same movie that I've always been making. Mm. And he, to this day, attests that uh, that these two weeks changed how he approached uh, filmmaking in a instrumental way and reshot a lot of the act three stuff. That's what, what they, they started the pr production with is uh, the act three stuff. And he completely kind of threw out. That was also 
not his choice to throw it out. He's, I mean, I think he is a prima donna, like all film directors, but it's not, it's not like he was just like, after two weeks, he was like, I hate it. Let's shoot it again. It's because in 2001, there was a, 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 a writer strike mm-hmm. that occurred that caused everyone to shut down productions for a month or two. Uh, so he got a month or two off, looked at the dailies, set, came back and said, let's just restart. Um, what else we got? Uh, the healthy choice frequent flyer miles subplot line is actually real. There's a dude, David Phillips, mm. who did this, uh, and Anderson had to receive approval from him and healthy choice to use his life to, story, to use his life story. Wow. And that's just kind of cool. Uh, feels very, um, uh, catch me if you can just yeah. like a scam artist who did a thing i don't know why you have Reminds the rights me of magnolia to that having a quiz boy element like that's right. the little yeah, tidbit yeah, yeah. of factoid that obviously always. appeals to pta it's all yeah he loves circumstance um just random happenstance um yeah what else uh anderson also oh yeah so if we you recall from our magnolia conversation uh he went over budget and like went way into the days, uh, shot 90 plus days or something like that when it was like supposed to only be like 60 or something. Uh, and so because of that, uh, at the time, I think it was Miramax got more control of the movie and final cut and all that and, and such. But he was kind of blessed in the Magnolia because they didn't like take advantage of it. But I think he felt the pressure of it because Anderson decided that he or he denied funding from Revolution Studios. And he was like, I'm going to keep it under 30 million because that's what you gave mm-hmm. me. And it's like important. It was important to him that he did that. Uh, because he probably he knew that the strings that come along uh, with that are uh, going over budget. Uh, he witnessed in Magnolia and he wanted to change that. John Bryan actually did find a harmonium with a hole in its bellows. Mm, nice. And he covered it with duct tape. And he and fell so, in love. Yeah. I mean, harmonium is in Magnolia and that's where, uh, that's where Paul Thomas Anderson was like, I love that instrument. What's that instrument? And I'm sure they just talked about harmoniums one night mm-hmm. and then... He just played notes at him. Uh, But yeah, I guess that's kind of how to do that. I just wanted to talk about the editing, uh, some of the filming and, uh, you know, the sound work, because those really are the things that shine in this movie. You really enriched my appreciation of Punka Lunka Dunka. (laughs) You know, dude, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. To be the olive oil to your Popeye. (laughs) Um, Uh, Give me a hamburger. That's that, right? Anyway, that's that. Wait, what is that? That's that, Matt Burger Boy. What does that uh, <laughs> imply is next on the docket for this show? Is it Steve Zissou? That it's Steve Zissou. Fucking... Yeah, is it Life Zissou Aquatic. or is it Zissou? Is it your Zissou? Bit? Zissou, I think. Zissou, right? Yeah. Devon Zissou. Life Aquatic. And then we'll, you'll see us next month for that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then, yeah, that's that mattress man. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm at Swaim underscore Corp in case you didn't know. That's on Twitter. Abe's at Abe the Mighty. And uh, if you're listening to this on the free feed, make sure to check out patreon.com slash smallbeans, where if you patronize us, you can get access to great 
Bonus shows like Bewilderments and Scientific, Star Trek The Next Futurama, and Spielboys. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans if you enjoyed this content module please like rate subscribe or tell a friend about us we love you